If I say to you, how are you? What do you say? Fine. Meaningless conversation. We do it all the time. I walked into church today. Someone said, you all right? And I go, is something wrong? But in England, that's how they greet you. They go, you all right? You all right? It's the same thing as how you doing. And if you answer anything else but fine, you're a little bit ticked off because you really only wanted a fine. You didn't want someone to stop you and say, could I tell you how things are going? Uh, meaningless conversation. It, it's part of being human. I mean, it's it basically answering how you're doing with fine is like saying there's a human being there. I'm acknowledging that. And then we just move on. I'm not even faulting it. I'm simply saying this. That's not what church is about. And that's not what seeking God is about. This is serious stuff. And this summer, as we're doing the Psalms, some of them of David, you're going to see that there's no meaningless conversation going on. This is life and death stuff. So if you would, I'd like you to open your Bibles or turn them on, if you brought one with you, to Psalm 27. If you don't have one, we place them on the back of the chairs in front of you. And would somebody who's just opened that up tell me what page Psalm 27 is on in, the, uh, in our church Bible? 546? 546, everybody. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this, this is a psalm of David. And no meaningless conversation going on here. This is serious stuff. You're going to watch David in the highs of highs. You're going to watch him collapse into the lows of lows. And you're going to watch him hanging on for dear life. Now, that's why a lot of us come to church. I bet you there's no one that doesn't come sometime during the year that isn't holding on for dear life. And that's because we live in a horrendous place called planet Earth. We come here to help find our way and to hold on and get through it. Uh, each week, some of you write out prayer requests. Last week, you turned in almost 50 of them. We pray for them, each one, on, on Tuesday mornings. But then this week, I did something different. I also took the sheet home, and yesterday, just before noon, after I'd finished the sermon, I then took out your prayer requests, and I laid them on top of my Bible, and I prayed through each one of them. And I came away thinking, we are just like David, holding on for dear life. We desperately need God to make it in this world. That's what you'll see here. That's what you'll see here. The very first verse sets the tone for where David's about to go. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The word fear, the word afraid. See those there? Look at this quote that I found this week from a, uh, Ernest Becker, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He says this, Any theory of existence that denies the lived truth of the evil and terror of life and the rumble and the panic under everything is worthless. Any theory of existence, he says, that denies the lived truth of the evil and the terror of life, the rumble and the panic under everything, is worthless. So if you come today anywhere on that spectrum, 
welcome. We have a word from God. Fear. It's a big theme for David. He, he deals with it a lot. So do we. 2 a.m. Your teenagers are still not home. Suddenly, the phone rings. Fear. You live alone. First floor apartment. It's a warm summer night. Screen door is open. You hear rustling outside. Probably just a squirrel. You hear it again. You hear it again. You hear it again. You close the door. You lock it. And you hope. Fear. A nightmare wakes you in a cold sweat. The reality of the images stick with you and you can't escape them. Fear. It's Monday morning. You've gone to work. Layoffs have been rampant. Your phone rings. You pick it up. It's your boss. Can you come in for a few minutes? We need to talk. Fear. Situations of fear are everywhere. And fear can tear apart our lives. It can paralyze our emotions so that, that, that we're always almost in a chronic state of high anxiety. It can become a settled state of being inside us. David was always in danger of that happening with him too. But just when it looks like fear is about to take hold of him, look what he does right there in the first verse. He cries out, The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? If you write in your Bible, circle my three times. This is not theory. This is not philosophy. This is real life stuff. And David had discovered that God was present with him now. He's facing some big things. You go, what is he facing? Well, let's take a look and see what was happening to cause this fear that then causes him to cry out, no, 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 when it's dark, God is my light. No, 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 no. When I'm afraid I'm about to be taken out, God will save me. No, 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 no. When I fear that I, my life is in danger, I have a fort. He cries out, the fortress. Well, what's going on? Look at verses 2 and 3. When the wicked advance against me to devour, to devour me, incidentally, in the King James Version, th that phrase there, to devour me, is to eat my flesh. That wasn't literal. They weren't cannibals. But something's going on in David's life that is so severe, he feels like his, his whole life is being eaten up inside. It is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Verse 3, though an army besiege me, my heart won't fear. The war break out against me. Even then I will be confident. So look at verse 2. Wicked advance to eat my flesh. Enemies, foes, army, war. All in two verses. Well, we're not exactly sure when this event takes place in David's life. But I'll tell you what I think, and I have some pretty good reasons for it. I think this suggests what may have been the most severe time of his life. 
David is about 60 years of age. He has seven wives, many children. He has conquered all that needs to be conquered. The, the, the kingdom is going quite well, but David was a wreck with his own family. And only a few years before this event, one of his sons, his firstborn, raped one of his sisters. Her name was Tamar, and he rapes her. She is a daughter of another wife. The Bible says David was furious, but he did nothing. This girl's big brother, Absalom, also a son of David, saw that the father was doing nothing and he began to grow in bitterness and anger and began to conspire. And he's going to try to rip the kingdom away from his dad. His dad does not deserve to be king. And what will happen, we'll study it more this fall because we're going to do the life of David starting in September. We'll go into this in depth. But what happened is that Absalom raises an army, starts to march against Jerusalem. David is totally outnumbered by this because even some of his own army and his closest advisors turn against him. And David will have to flee for his life with the few that are with him out of Jerusalem. I think that's the setting. And I'll show you why in just a moment. But there it is. This is happening. Now, right as you've got 2 and 3 there with you, look over to verse 12. Do not turn me over to the desire of my enemies. False witnesses rise up against me. People are spouting malicious accusations. So it's probably what is going on is working on two levels. One, it's working on the real life and death level of an army led by his own son that's marching against him, that wants to take over the city. It's also working at another level, and this one hurts even more. Malicious, malice, woundedness going on from people he had trusted who are turning against him. My gosh, if one of your own children seeks to destroy you, what is life like? Friends turning, forming into the other army. The, he just, he feels the incredible weight of being abandoned. The incredible weight of being abandoned. If you have your Bibles open, turn now over to Psalm 3. Because Psalm 3 is, we know, written during the time of Absalom's wanting to take over. Psalm 3. I've got verses 1 and 7 on the screen for you here. We'll leave it up as I'm reading this. Lord, how many are my foes? How many are rising up against me? And then David says, verse 2, many are saying that God won't deliver me. And then verse 7. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. I really like that in David. I don't want David to come across as so holy he doesn't have real feelings and anger. He can't believe how friends are turning against him. And he cries out to God, Lord, hit them in the mouth and kick their teeth out. Yeah, I like that. Arr, arr, arr. It's not going to accomplish anything, but it would be nice. <laughs> this is what's going on with David. Now back to our chapter, which I think 27 is a companion psalm of, of Psalm 3. Even with all that going on, look at him again. 
Verse 2, they advance against me to devour me. Verse 3, an army besieges me. Uh, Verse 3b, war breaks out against me. But look at the response from David against all three of those realities. Though they, they advance against me to devour me, it is my enemy and my foes who shall fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, I will be confident. How? I mean, I think it's safe to say David was a little off. How can you be going against what he's going against and then suddenly say, even then I shall be confident my enemy shall fall? Almost robotic-like. The reality was quite different. At least the reality in the world of flesh and blood was different. David has this capacity to feel the depths of what's going wrong in a way that that, that goes beyond most of us. Remember, David is a king, and he's a five-star general, but he's also a poet and a songwriter, and they are weird people. Okay. My wife, Marie, married one of them. So how does someone with that temperament who appears to be sinking in the morass of life, how is he able to rise up and say things, but they shall fall, but God will be with me, but I am confident. How do you get there? Is David crazy? Or is David just living on a different plane than most of us do? I argue He's living on a different plane. See, what, what gives him that buoyancy? What gives him that hope? Incidentally, the kingdom will be saved and David will continue on. What gives him the ability to stay up when everything in life is pushing down? The answer is in the next three verses, four, five, and six. Watch this. This just overwhelms me. Okay. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek Him in His temple. Verse 5, For in the day of trouble He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His sacred tent. He will set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above my enemies who surround me. At His sacred tent... I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and I will make music to the Lord. Where does David get his ability to rise above circumstances and have hope? There it is. David goes to church. One thing I've asked from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. House of the Lord, temple, dwelling, sacred tent, sacred tent. All of those nouns talking about a place. A place. In in David's day, it was only a tent. 
You see, what had happened is that the ark of God that had been built in the time of Moses in which the Ten Commandments were at this time still there, God's glory and God's presence was all over it. It was outside of Jerusalem in another land. And when David takes over Jerusalem, he brings that ark to Jerusalem and he builds in a, in a part of the city this enormous tabernacle or tent over it. And it's where God's people go to worship him. It's where they go, our God is a mighty God. It's where they do what we were just doing. They didn't have electric guitars, but they did okay. And they just went on and he would worship God. God and he loved going there and sacrifices were, were playing. In fact, this place and this thing was so special to God that when it was brought to Israel, he danced uh, over it. We're going to look at that in a few minutes. He danced and he danced and he danced. David loved God and David loved being in God's places. L look at the verbs that he uses. I want to dwell in his house. Verse 4, I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Now, 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 go back with me here. There's an army coming at the city. And David says, I, I just want to go to the tabernacle. I want to gaze on the beauty of God. It doesn't say glance at the beauty of God. It says gaze, deep focus, I want to go and be with God's people. I want to smell the aromas of the sacrifices before God. I want to hear the singing of the songs. And there's times in our life when that's what we've got to have too. I love the church. Now, if you're, if you're a Protestant evangelical theologian, you're saying, Lon, Lon, Lon. No, 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 no. The temple of God is now within you. I know that. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. We are now the temple of... There's no more need for a temple of God. For God dwelleth in each one. And Americans take that. Radical individualists say, I love God, but I don't need anybody else. And I certainly don't need a church. Hogwash. We were built to gather with God's people. If Christ dwells in you, the temple of God is in you right now. Okay? If you haven't come to that point yet, for goodness sake, give your life to Jesus Christ. Begin to experience his indwelling presence. But the reason this is so important is because I need you and you need me. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And can you imagine the weight of the glory of God when a thousand people are worshiping him in song? And when you come in really sad and down and you can't even open your mouth to sing and you start hearing it around you. The reason places like this matter so much is because we need the corporate sense of the presence of God. God is larger because he's in you and he's in you and he's in you and he's in you and we're all together. I love the church. This week I was studying this passage with some of our staff. I try to, when I'm going to preach, offer to have a lunch with whoever wants to come with their Bible and help me work through the passage. And four of our staff were able to come. And then one I met with afterwards. And as we were studying this aspect of it, one of them, who's a dear woman in our church who's just lost her husband, 
of nearly 40 years of marriage to a vicious, vicious disease. And she was there with her Bible open. And I was talking about the church and how it's all of us coming together. And she says, oh, I just love being in the church. She says, Lon, if there's, a, if there's an empty room, I'm moving in. And then right afterwards, I was with another one of our young pastors from the Hispanic side. And he and his wife lost a baby two weeks ago before birth. And it was terribly painful. The baby was far along and it was hard on the mom and they had to rush the mom to the hospital and it was just horrendous. And so we have another little child who's already in heaven and didn't live here. That doesn't take away the pain from the mom and dad. And as I was having lunch with this pastor and I was telling him about the church again, he says, oh, he says, yeah, Alon, Lily and I couldn't wait to get back to the church. We just needed to be with God's people. That's kind of what David's into here. I mean, at this horrendous moment in his life, he knows the place that's most important to him is to gather with God's people. Whether this is your church home or you're visiting us this summer and you're from another one, love it. And please, I, I understand it's not perfect. Your church is not perfect. Our church is not perfect. You know why? Because you're here. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you bring together 50 people or 5,000 people who love Jesus together and you'll find yourself beginning to float and come up from the morass of life. Boy, the way we were singing this morning, we were crying out, holding on to God. I get it. That's what David does. Oh, and incidentally, music's a big part of it, isn't it? You should have heard the traditional service. We took that great old song, uh, The Lord is my light and my salvation. And we had this operatic lyric soprano sing it. And the, the first service erupted. The, how many of you have ever been to the first service here? Okay, does the first service ever erupt? Not often. <laughs> it, but, but they worship God with more stateliness you're just a bunch of you know and the place just erupted under this song just as it did when we were singing here that's because music has a high place in the corporate worship of God's people look what Martin Luther writes about it the devil the originator of sorrowful anxieties and restless trouble flees from the sounds of music almost as much as before the word of God so that's why even when I'm down front and I'm going to be speaking, I'll turn and look at you as we're singing because I need you. I need to see some of you that are going like this. And I even need to see those of you that are just going. Because you could be worshiping as deeply inside as the weirdos going like this. I'm fine with either. And I need it. Presses away the darkness almost as much as the word of God. Wow. David loved the church. Look at these two verses from Psalms. Psalm 26, 8, Psalm 122, 1. Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory lives. Psalm 26, 8. And Psalm 122, 1. I was so glad when they said to me, let's go up to the house of the Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. If you haven't found a church home, find a church home. It'll be a gift to you. 
It certainly was to David. It's what David chose to do when he was about to die. <laughs> okay? All right. Well, he doesn't only do that, though. Now watch in verses 7 through 12 where David takes this. And now we move from David talking about God to actually talking with God. This is a prayer. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. Verse 7, verse 8. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. Verses 7 and 8. David, in his intimacy and his love for God, you can feel it coming from him. He loves God. He wants to be with God. He, he wants God to hear his voice. He wants God's mercy. He wants God to answer as he's crying out to save his kingdom. And then he says in verse uh, 8, My heart says of you, Your face, Lord, will I seek. Seek my face. When you seek the face of somebody, that's absolute intimacy. No one can do it very long. Uh, Elder John and I are pretty good friends with each other, and we can look each other in the face from here, but we won't do it very long. It's just a little embarrassing because it's the deepest form of intimacy. Eyes, gazing. I just want to be with you, God. This is the cry of David's heart. So it looks like he's doing okay in his prayer, but then watch what happens in verses 9 and 10. He goes from the high of highs and he starts heading south again into the deep waters of despair. Do not hide your face from me, verse 9. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother, verse 10, forsake me, the Lord will receive me. What is going on? David now, it's like fear is rising up inside him again. He says, God, don't hide from me. God, don't turn away from me. God, don't reject me because everyone else has. Abandonment is one of the deepest wounds of life. Don't you leave too. And there was something in David that knew that God should leave him. It's a holy God. Holy God doesn't put up with our junk. Something has to be done. David knew what he had done to his daughter, consigning her to a life of solitude because of the rape. David knew how it started ripping his family systems apart. David knew that when lust got the better of him and he took Bathsheba, another man's wife, as his own, that he'd committed adultery. David knew what had happened when he conspired the murder of Bathsheba's husband so that he could marry Bathsheba. He was not a very good person. Just like us. And so there's something inside him that says, please don't forsake me. Please don't leave. In his great psalm, Psalm 51, he says, well, cast me not away from thy presence, O God. Don't take the Holy Spirit from me. David knew that sin 
causes separation from a holy God. He had earned even God's abandoning him. So he goes down deep again. Will God stay with him even now? And so his hope starts to rise. And at the end of verse 9, he says, Oh, but you have been my helper. Be my helper again. At the end of verse 10, even though my parents have died and I'm an orphan and alone and my son is trying to kill me, oh, God, you will receive me. You see it in verse 10. Incidentally, the stronger uh, uh, interpretation of that phrase, he will receive me, is he will gather me in the way that a mother gathers a child. No matter what I've done, God, can I believe that you will gather me anyway? Can I hold on? Can I hold on? Can I hope? David remains hopeful that God won't abandon him too. And part of the reason God doesn't is because a thousand years later, a son of David will be born. Jesus, David's greater son. And David's greater son will be the son of God. And the son of God will walk the dusty roads of Palestine and the Son of God will raise the dead and the Son of God will heal the sick and the Son of God will forgive all sins of all people who cry out to him for all time. David's hope is not in David's goodness. He's looking ahead. Jesus was of the line of David. And he is the greater son. So, friends, jumping out of David's story to the bigger story, I'm so glad for David's greater son. Because while David could hope that God would not forsake him, we can know he won't. Because Jesus Christ came to earth and loved us so much that he takes on all of David's sins and Lon's sins and Adam's sins and Scott's sins and Stacy's sins. And in his great perfection, he takes all of our evil upon him and he dies because sin always kills Three days later, he climbs out of that tomb and he rises, for he was the perfect sacrifice that could never stay dead very long. And what's the last thing that he says to us before he ascends to the Father? I will be with you until the end of time. What's the point in this sermon? What's Lon Allison really trying to say? And we're going to put it on the screen. I just call upon us to immerse ourselves in God's presence and his love publicly 
and in our private lives. Immerse yourself in the presence and the love of God publicly and in your private lives. This is how we hold on for dear life. And this is what it means to really come home. I have one more thing to say in the sermon. Actually, I'm not going to say it. I'm going to do it. This table. This is where we receive proof positive that the presence and the love of God will never abandon us if we know and love Jesus Christ. For on the night when Jesus Christ was betrayed, he had gathered with his disciples. And as he gathered with them, he took bread and he took a cup. And Jesus said to them these strange things. Eat this bread and drink this cup. This is my body and this is my blood which is shed for you. What Jesus was doing in that great event which we have been called to remember and practice until he returns is this was his way of saying, I won't forsake you. I won't abandon you. I will be with you always. My death and my resurrection will be proof positive. Take this, my body. Take this, my blood. That's how near I am to you. And so in just a couple moments, we will partake of the bread and the cup.